Welcome to the Clinical Research Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Wolke. In this podcast, we bridge conversations between industry, thought leaders, and patients. Utilizing a unique perspective, integrating years of coaching with Tony Robbins, coupled with scientific and industry experience. We have vulnerable and real conversations with the goal of impacting the industry in meaningful ways. Today on the podcast, we speak with Dr. Daniel Fox. Dr. Fox is a translational researcher with almost two decades of experience in science, quality, and research. He's worked at small biotechs, global pharma, academic institutions, military bases, and clinical research sites. Dr. Fox dedicates his life to ensuring patients receive new and innovative therapies as quickly efficiently, and safely as possible. Currently, he focuses on sites rights and advocacy to help patients, physicians, and sites access research opportunities as an integrated healthcare solution. All right. So I am here with Dr. Daniel Fox. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. It's a good Thanksgiving Day blessing. Well, it is an honor to have you. And give us a little bit of background. Yes, I'm Dr. Fox. I'm a translational scientist. I only know three languages. Translational scientist generally means bench to bedside. So my goal in life is to try to get the technologies from our scientists into our patients as safely and as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, in the clinical trial industry, what would you say are some of the challenges? That's kind of how you and I have connected is discussing mm -hmm. some of the things in the industry that um, maybe there's an opportunity to change. There's plenty of opportunity to change. I guess that kind of goes back into my background. Um, I worked in academia and I worked in small biotech where I wrote buttons and I helped to develop and design technology uh, for business reasons. And then I went to go manufacture pharmaceuticals where we actually worked with the big companies so that we can develop the drugs and make the drugs and ship them to clinical sites. And then I went to the clinical site and my eyes were open and I realized this is not what we intended to do, you know, three careers ago. This is not <laughs> what's supposed to happen here. What's going on here, guys? And so I started, um, I started dissecting it. I started analyzing the contracts started collecting data. And uh, to answer your question, there's a lot of, we wouldn't necessarily call it changes, but there's a lot of realignment that we really have to do to give rights to the sites that have already been promised to them. We're actually, we kind of have to dig ourselves out of a hole before we can actually grow uh, a little more into this industry. So what do you think? So you said, you know, this isn't the career I expected three careers ago. <laughs> How is it different? Give us a little bit of a framework there. Well, I, I started as a translational scientist. I wanted to be the one to develop the drug. I wanted to be on the bench. I wanted to develop the molecule. I wanted to patent it and be part of that pharmaceutical company that sends it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, the company that I started with ended up folding, like many of the small biotech companies not necessarily for the technology's reason, but because of our understanding of how to get it to the patients. There was a misunderstanding with statistics. Um, and then when I went into uh, the manufacturing field and I was over in California and we were doing wonderfully with the global biotechs, 
I actually ended up having pretty bad news about my daughter. My daughter had a terminal illness. And so it brought me back to the Midwest where I started. And so I've been here on the clinical side ever since. My daughter has since passed, but that gives me the motivation that I need to fix this clinical research realm so that we can actually save as many lives as we can. So people who maybe have a daughter like mine in the future, they won't have to go through the same kind of a uh, pain process as our family did. And I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your daughter. Um, you know, and I think that that purpose-driven mission can fuel you to, as you said, help so many other people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, if you look at, at, you know, you talked about giving the rights to the sites, what kind of rights mm-hmm. would those be? How do you see realigning? Well, things? So uh, first and foremost, we can always just go back to the contracts. What exactly were sites promised in the first place? Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, the big elephant in the room is payments. Most of the time, even uh, some of the worst contracts that we see are quarterly payments. You know, they get paid every quarter. But even those quarterly payments turn into every five months, every six months, uh, 18 months late. Uh, so payment times are just completely non-compliant. There are other rights that sites have, such as the right to actually work under a contract. There's just this really weird understanding that sites just kind of do it for the patient and they don't need a contract to do it. I've, I've processed so many contracts six to nine months after a protocol amendment was executed, meaning that for six to nine months, sites were literally just kind of expected to continue a protocol that they had no assurance under contract to perform. So even some of our basic legal rights in this industry, where we are, we are an industry of contracts, even some of our basic legal rights are encroached every single day. Um, it's, it's kind of concerning. It's funny, I, not funny, but it's interesting to me because I think that I was a coach for Tony Robbins. I'm still a trainer for Tony uh, part-time. Mm-hmm. I do that. And Tony has this theory about the six human needs, that there's six primary human needs that we all have. We've got the need to feel love and connection. We have the need to feel important or significant. We have the need for certainty, that sense of knowing how things will go. We have that need for uncertainty or surprise, that Mm -hmm. element. And then we have a desire for growth and contribution. I find a lot of times that people in the clinical trial space are ones that have more altruistic motivation. And so these people that are kind of heart-based, you know, want to help people and start out as clinicians are then asked to create a contract and to create a budget. And sometimes what I find is those folks are kind of like, we're going to put this down, but they don't anticipate the operational overhead expenses. Um, Maybe it's, you know, it could be something as easy as gosh, we're going to have more wear on the carpet in our office. Therefore, it will need to be replaced more frequently. We'll have 16 more rolls of toilet paper a week, which adds up to $85 a month, whatever those little costs, but you times those out by a five-year study, those add up. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. The altruism is real. And so I think sometimes you'll find, especially in the clinical research realm, People are here, they're doing it for the patients and they have good hearts. And unfortunately, I feel like that's taken advantage of because Mm -hmm. like you said, there's, I mean, this is a lucrative market if we do it properly. 
And I think that there are people who are making a lot of money on the backs of the altruism that we experience. Uh, just like what you said, I've heard it's from so many doctors. They said, I am not an accountant. I'm not a business person. I'm not a lawyer. I just want to help patients. Mm-hmm. And so if you get those doctors in front of contracts and they sign them again, I think there's kind of like a, maybe a predatory aspect to the industry where people will kind of take advantage of that. Uh, and okay. I'm going to give you a different yeah. reframe here because I, I think that the person on the other side of the contract, their job is to save the company money. So they win when they keep those contracts as lean as possible. So you've got Mm -hmm. one person's desire to keep contracts as lean as possible and one person's desire to just help the patient. I don't want to be dealing with this contract. And you put those two people together, the one with the more uh, business, for lack of a better term, mind who's trained to do those contracts is going to always get the better end of the deal, so to speak, than the other person who's not trained. It would be like playing chess against somebody who's a world master and myself who's never played chess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're you're spot on. A couple of things sparked in my mind there and actually just little brainstorms. But the first one is you're exactly right. So I'm not exactly part of a, a large site right now. But from my experience, it really does feel like it's you against an army of lawyers or like those chess masters when it comes to negotiations. You have to develop some thick skin really quickly or else you will risk underfunding your trial. Underfunded trials are not uh, what we desire. The other thing that brought to my mind is I wonder if that frame set that you had mentioned, it worked very well um, earlier in the clinical research history with a lot of these altruistic doctors. What we're finding is with some of the younger doctors, the ones who have larger medical school bills or the ones who really have to focus on their finances just to survive, they're starting to get a little, get a little more business savvy. Mm-hmm. A lot of these younger doctors, they're saying, what's in it for me, right? I need to be paid. I, you know, I need, need to pay my medical school bills. And when, then when you give them the amount of money that they're going to get, the first thing that they say is, well, that's just an expensive hobby. I can't afford to do that. I'm better off doing clinical research. I'm better off doing my clinical hours. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if maybe the industry is so spoiled with those altruistic doctors that didn't have to worry about the medical school bills, that now as they're coming into this industry where doctors actually have to worry about what they get paid, there's kind of like a little bit of a culture shock where mm. it's like, oh, now that we have a little bit of an underfunded study, we can't necessarily make the same kind of a margin that we used to before because people are starting to need that money more. We're starting to need the resources on the clinical research side. And uh, as a result, maybe this isn't exactly working the way that it used to be. Dr. Fox, what do you think about, I saw some data that suggests that of the percentage of physicians that go into a clinical trial, a very small percentage actually ever complete a second clinical trial. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Oh, that's very true. So I think it's a 70% of most of the physicians that uh, undergo research right now are what they call one and dones. Mm-hmm. And it's just that they come in, they do the research, they say, yeah, this isn't for me and they leave. There's a number of reasons for that. The majority of it is that industry expectation of time on physicians now. Um, that is very important, not just for cost, but also for time. So cost, I just talked about that. It's really not worth their time. It's an expensive hobby. 
because we're not paying them competitively for their rates, for what it costs for them to do business. And number two is just that their time is worth a ton of money. And I mean, a ton. And so when you do research, you're expected to do hours upon hours of training for every single trial that you do. Every single time you take an hour away from the doctor, you just took food off of their family's plate. You just took food out of their organization. And so now it's this really weird, like, this is, I, 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 this isn't worth the paperwork. It's not worth my time. I don't want to do it. So from, from what I've seen, that's kind of experiences. It's literally just way too taxing for these physicians. So there's almost a higher return on investment spending their time elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So if we're going to continue, I mean, clinical trials aren't going away. We might decentralize mm -hmm. them. We might do some other things, but, and some may be handled via AI or real world evidence, but if clinical trials aren't going away and we've got these one and done scenarios where physicians aren't wanting to do a second clinical trial, we've got drug development and precision medicine taking us to entirely different levels, requiring more trials. What's the solution here? I think that what you're going to see in the next three to five years is a complete integration of research into the healthcare market. You're going to see um, a lot, of, there's a lot of companies going on right now, and they're working on ways to make it really easy for the physician and really easy for the patient to be enrolled into research just by going to their doctor's office. I don't think you're going to see as much of these standalone things as much as just, you know, Healthcare is worth trillions of dollars, right? And research is worth billions. So we know which one's bigger. It only makes sense that we put the clinical back into clinical research. And so then what you're going to see is, for example, like with my company, we try to integrate finances into healthcare and research. I, I see other companies where they try to make it so that even a physician doesn't want to be an investigator or a PI, they can still put their patients onto research trials by working remotely with a, a PI or by putting technology into their physician's offices. You're going to see um, a lot of the AI-driven recruitments where they scrub the EMRs. They try to find the patients. They're going to flag the patients for the physicians. Physicians are going to either enroll them as PIs or maybe as vendors to PIs. Um, and so then as a result, I, I think that's the answer is the solution is going to be complete integration. And um, so you talked a little bit about your company, how your company helps to get physicians paid for what they're doing or integrate the finances. Mm -hmm. Speak a little bit more about that. How did that come sure. up? How is that your mission? <laughs> How'd you come um, up with that idea? A lot of it had to do with working where I'm at now. I was, I talked to the CEO, we started chatting and that whole discussion about how healthcare is worth trillions, mm -hmm. research is worth billions. And it just doesn't make sense to have research come into healthcare and say, we expect you to conform. Healthcare is just going to look at you and laugh. They don't, they don't need research. It's like it's an expensive hobby. It only makes sense if we take research and we model it based off of the financial models of healthcare. Prime example is in the model of healthcare where you have the um, like the third-party insurance provider, the company, the healthcare provider, and the patient. Imagine that model overlapped over to research where the healthcare provider is the PI in the clinical site, 
the insurance provider or the third-party payer is my company. And then the sponsor is our patient. Mm. So in essence, what we do is we have a group of clinical sites who we have master fee schedules with, and then we go to sponsors and we charge them a premium, just like healthcare would charge a patient a premium. And then when they pay the premium, they get the card for their network and they can go throughout our network, the in-network providers, find the sites that qualify according to the trials that they need, give them their insurance card or their third-party payer card, and then boom, they're done. No negotiations are needed when a patient's life is on hand. We did that well ahead of time. So then you see billions of hours used all the time trying to negotiate and do all this other stuff just on because of an efficiency change. And how is, how is this model being received so far? So far, pretty well. I have a, pretty, a big and growing site network. We're targeting well over 20 by the end of the year. I've got two sponsors that are going to pilot the program. Um, and I've got a couple of very big sponsors that are starting to look at it. Because once you start looking at a sponsor and you're saying, how would you like to significantly reduce your startup time from weeks to days? And how would you like to not have to negotiate um, every single time you need to do a trial? They look at you, they quantify how much money they would be saving. And then they say, I, would, I wouldn't mind taking a look at this. This would be a pretty good and efficient process. So, Right. If we look at the standard metrics that each day that something is delayed in clinical research mm-hmm. is, you know, estimates have ranged oh. from $100,000 to $600,000, depending on the class of drug and what the indication yeah. is that if you can save someone two weeks, that's... Oh my gosh, there you go. Yeah. You're set. It would uh-huh. be well worth it to pay the premium. You'd be paying far less to pay a premium and access a network of pre-negotiated sites uh, just to get your drug up and running. What kind of things do you do to vet your sites? Uh, well, so far, this goes to more of the metrics that I'm collecting. So we do have metrics that we look at sites mm-hmm. uh, and sponsors. I have a sponsor-driven metric, and it's through what I call the PACT score, the P-A-C-T. There's a version for sites and there's a version for sponsors. And PACT just stands for Promises, Access, Choice, and Trust. It's a series of variables that are very important. (laughs) Like what you're saying, the six needs, right? Uh This is the, uh, there's about 48 questions in a PACT survey. And once you're finished with that, it compares itself to a database of surveys that are submitted by vetted sites who are confirmed via clinicaltrials.gov and via uh, their memberships to CRPN. And uh, you actually get a score. You get a credit rating to understand how risky it might be to work with someone. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's getting pretty cool. We've got well over 70 surveys submitted now and starting to show the landscape. Mm-hmm. So what would you say as you're looking at this, what are what is the data showing? What are the big takeaways? There are some there are some sponsors and some sites with some big strengths mm-hmm. and some things that they might need to improve on. Most of the weaknesses that we see have to do with time, time management and payments. Those are pretty bad. A lot of the times there's there's some especially in some of the larger CROs that submit surprises, like sites just aren't thrilled with how communication is going, what they're being told and how things are being done. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that 
one of the big things that we find to be, it, it's kind of variable depending on who you talk to is that of access. Uh, that This might go back to like portals and portal utilization. Some sites like it and some sites don't. Most of the sites that like it tend to be the smaller ones. Maybe they have one or two trials. Maybe they're they don't, not doing a whole lot. The more trials you get onto your plate, the less likely you are to like or appreciate the access of portals. And it makes sense because once you start managing, you know, all of these different passwords for every single uh, utilization that you have for all of the trials that you have, it gets pretty cumbersome. I think if you've, I've heard um, some sites have said they've had up to six to 10 different logins for one specific study. So as we look at how we can simplify that, because I think technology can give us that instant look at where a study's at, where patients are at, you know, are we meeting metrics? That's when I used to manage trials, I would look at the metrics, you know, in my own homegrown systems at the time. Mm -hmm. And now some of these systems that have the robust reporting and delivery, we're able to really look at, okay, how can we take this data and what's the meaning behind it? Because data is really only as useful as the action you can take based on looking at it. It's, it doesn't help mm -hmm. you to have this portal if you can't take meaningful action based on the data you're reviewing. Um, exactly. You know, so I think that that portals can be useful, but if they become cumbersome or people aren't trained on them, I completely agree, then they can be uh, burden, burdensome to sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're going to see single sign-ons are on their way. Within the next two years, they'll likely be a standard. So we can at least get the single sign-ons established for each trial. But then if you're still running 200 trials, that's still <laughs> 200 single sign-ons. I mean... Well, unless like we have, we have a system that is single sign on and it allows you to look at, if you're in multiple trials, if they're all in that system, you can look at them all yep. simultaneously. Yep. You know, it was designed yep. by people in clinical for people in clinical, as opposed to yep. a software developer designing it. Who's never, never randomized a patient, never screen failed a patient, never mm -hmm. looked at a, a protocol. So it's a, a little bit different mindset than just technology for technology's sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that's another good point too. The whole, the site facing, site facing solutions, mm -hmm. those are going to be key. There's a term that I, a lot of these companies, especially like with sponsors, they'll look at you and say, this is the software we're using, deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, we call it talk down tech for a reason, because it's pretty much just, it's not really something that the site selected. It's just something that we're told to use based off of a, a trial. Um, a lot of the times, especially now, the whole single sign-on thing is becoming a, a range of talk-down texts from some of the larger sponsors. Look at this one, you know, we hear your we hear your concerns, we hear what you're doing. Here's our solution to you. We don't care about the other 50 people you work for. Mm. <laughs> um, that's that's kind of where we're going now. Eventually, I think and I hope talk-down tech will kind of disappear. And it's going to be more of a, we respect you professionally as a site. And we know that you will have the tools and you know what works best for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as a result, kind of like API interchangeability, where our computers will talk to your computers and you can kind of just do what's good for you. And it'll, um, that's kind of what I'm hoping will happen, but I think we're still a long way from that. We're going to have to recognize first that sites at least have the right to choose 
going back to site rights, they have mm-hmm. the right to choose as professionals what works best for their environment. And that's going to take some significant cultural change. So how would you suggest if a site, you know, that's a well-established site, because if it's a site that doesn't have these systems in place, I think there can almost be a leveling up as mm-hmm. they adopt some of these systems. Uh, yep. And so how do we elevate the playing fields, share best practices, 